Bookstuck with Richard Aldous, the Books and Ideas podcast brought to you by AmericanPurpose.com. You can check our website for all the latest commentary and analysis, and it's also where you can sign up for our regular live Zoom events, including on October the 4th, Ambassador Ryan Crocker on Afghanistan, Iraq and regional challenges. Register at AmericanPurpose.com. Coming up on the show today, Harold James, Princeton professor and author of the new book, The War of Words, A Glossary of Globalization. Harold, welcome to Bookstack. It's great to be with you, Richard. So congratulations uh, on the book. And as you say, words like capitalism, socialism, democracy, uh, and even the pronouns we use are often fired as munition in today's culture. Yes, uh, absolutely. Um, you know, my feeling was uh, that words are used in a very, very imprecise way. And uh, I sometimes think of words as analogous to money. I'm originally an economic and financial historian. And uh, you know, when you have too much money, uh, it gets inflated and the value gets reduced. Um, and you know, I think exactly that has happened uh, with many, many words that we use, that uh, uh, we, we just use them indiscriminately. We call people fascists or capitalists or neoliberals or globalists, and uh, nobody knows really exactly what that means. And uh, you get a sense of something vaguely unpleasant in many cases, but uh, there's, there's no precision. And so I thought the mission was really to clean up the vocabulary. Yeah, I mean, it it's, it runs through the entire book that the vocabulary that we use is so important. What, why do words matter so much? Well, words are a way of packaging a particular set of ideas and interpretations, and the words that you use are actually going to shape the way in which you formulate responses, uh, politicians formulate policies on the basis of, of descriptions. Um, and so you know, that's, that's exactly the reason that I thought uh, we, we need a greater conceptual clarity. Is part of the problem that debate is becoming more and more difficult because everything is so polarised and, and that includes language itself? Yes, I, I think the tendency to polarise is not a particularly recent one. Uh, there are really polarisations that go deep, deep into the past. I, I mean, you know, I think, for instance, European history is uh, fundamentally shaped uh, by religion versus uh, secularism or anti-religion. And you see many societies, uh, Spain or Italy, I think, uh, where, where Catholic culture is, is uh, most implanted, uh, that are really polarized along those lines. And even afterwards, uh, the sense that you need to be either for or against something is uh, very, very present. Uh, you know, when Berlusconi was prime minister, uh, people defined themselves as for or against Berlusconi. I mean, you make it very clear that uh, we're, we're definitely in a, a moment of polarization now. We are currently experiencing a radical reorientation of economy, society, and politics, you write, through the dramatic clash of two principles or philosophies. Now, I mean, uh, you give them all kinds of uh, different names or show how they've been given different names, but it, essentially it's globalism versus particularism. Can can you explain what that is and, and also why different words have been used? to uh, describe and explain it? Yes. Uh, I, I mean, I think that's 
that's not exactly a, a new thought, as it were. I mean, it's 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 running through everything. There's a, you know a nice discussion of that and the uh, division between uh, people who are everywhere and uh, people who are somewhere. Citizens um, of nowhere, citizens yes. of somewhere. Yes, exactly. I mean, that, that, that was a really, really wonderful book. Um, but uh, indeed, it's, um, it's, I think, the, the current fault line, and it's, uh, it's in societies, I, I think, all over the world. Um, it, it's certainly in the United States, uh, it's in the UK, it's the aftermath of Brexit, um, it's, it's in Europe, um, but it's also in Brazil or India. Uh, I'm not sure exactly how it's expressed in China, but there's probably something of that even in uh, Chinese debates. Uh, so it, it is u- ubiquitous. Um, I, I think the best way of illustrating how that works is just by thinking about one of the terms that's frequently used to think about this, um, the, the uh, term that the, the somewheres use about the people who they think are nowhere, um, globalism. Um, so the globalism uh, and globalist was a famous bit of the vocabulary of uh, President Trump when he, he was at the UN General Assembly. He, he thought that was a great place to denounce globalists, um, but he did that all over the country as well. And uh, you know, it, it, it intrigued me when I tried to work out what the actual history of this concept was. It, it was first, I think, uh, really widely uh, applied in the Second World War. And the originator of the term, as far as I could see, uh, was a German emigre uh, called Ernst Jeck, uh, who wrote about Hitler as a globalist. Uh, so you know, that, that's odd because Hitler himself defined himself as being against globalists. And he had that, that vocabulary about being in favor of the people who are rooted against the unrooted people. Um, and that was a kind of code word, obviously, for, for, for Jews. Um, but he, he, he used that vocabulary uh, again and again. And then um, this, this uh, German academic uh, turned that around and said that Hitler is a globalist because he's aiming at world conquest. Um, Stalin looked as if he was a globalist as well because communism was an international principle. And then very, very quickly, the term globalist u- got used to... Uh, criticize an excessive uh, American global reach. And so it quickly flipped from being a term to describe fascism or Nazism or communism uh, to describing uh, the United States. It flared up again in usage uh, during the the Vietnam War, um, used by critics of the Vietnam War. And it flared up again after 2003, after the Iraq War. So it was a critique of uh, American global engagement, but you know what I thought was really fascinating to trace was the story of how it came um, from a very polarized environment in the 1930s, where there was a great deal of this debate uh, between the nowheres and the somewheres. 
And it's fascinating that you that you use that you use that word flip because it, it it seems to me time and again in the book you show how words are used in one context and then and then almost appropriated and and used in their complete opposite or sometimes how they're they're put together. I mean, they, it immediately occurs to me that when you're talking about the Nazis, even the idea of national socialists themselves is is kind of something where we struggle with what that definition actually means and the the uh, the the way in which the way in which they used it. Yes, I, I, absolutely. I, I, I mean, it, uh, it it was built really, I think, on this double rejection of both socialism and capitalism. Uh, the, these these words that were also buzzwords in the nineteenth century that had developed from the, the the discussions really during the period of the French Revolution and its aftermath. Um, and uh, they said. Um, both socialism and capitalism are international phenomena. Uh, in socialism, uh, they attributed then to, uh, in, in its uh, Russian form in, in, in Bolshevism, as a, a principle that aimed, uh, and, you know, they were right about that, that it aimed to, to spread all over the world. But capitalism was all over the world as well. And so uh, this, this doctrine was... It, Expressly put up as a way of thinking about returning things to the the national roots. I mean, you talked earlier as you you took us around the world. You talked about the United States and Britain and Brexit and Europe and Brazil and so on. I mean, I mean, uh, today, do you think that the pandemic and coronavirus, what kind of impact is that going to have on making these kind of differences in language sharper? Do you think? The, the, the COVID crisis uh, has, has been a tremendous jolt. It's produced a, a fantastic sense of dislocation and, and the feeling that a new era is really beginning. Um, and it makes, I think, uh, people very sensitive to threats that come from somewhere else. So the immediate reaction is to close yourself off and... Uh, Obviously, in epidemiological uh, terms, that's absolutely appropriate. You don't want people to travel uh, when they're bringing disease with them. But it has a kind of metaphor of uh, foreigners bringing disease uh, that initially, I think, feeds into the exactly the the uh, the, 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 the somewhere the um, the rooted the uh, the populist uh, emphasis on locality. Uh, but then, uh, the, the the moment you think about it a bit more, you begin to realize that actually it also shows the extent to which we're globally connected, and we need those global connections in order to produce solutions. So if you think of uh, how the vaccines are produced, uh, they're not produced in one country alone. Um, somebody did a demonstration of this for the um, BioNTech uh, Pfizer. Uh, vaccine that that's that's produced uh, apparently in at least twenty eight different countries, uh, and if you think about how the glass vials are created that are needed for the transportation and the storage and so on, it becomes clear that you you actually with this unless you have a a, um, a a kind of globally connected world, and so it seems to me that actually uh, you know in the longer run. Probably uh, this this crisis will it, it will highlight the differences between localism and globalism, but it will 
it will actually push in a new kind of globalization. And uh, the more that we're realizing that we're dependent on on supplies that come from very far, far off places, uh, the more I think we will think about how to construct a more resilient uh, global infrastructure. I mean, it's interesting because, I mean, you were talking about the science and, and we'd add technology here as well, which which in many ways seems to uh, provide the answers, but it's also is, has been part of what has made the divisiveness uh, worse. How, how, how does the, the kind of language surrounding science and technology, how is that changing and what kind of impact is that going to have? Yeah, again, I think that's something that's not new. It's the 20th century experience uh, that we apply technology to find solutions to military conflicts or to other kinds of conflicts. Um, the, the word uh, uh, um, uh, technician, technologist, uh, as a political phenomenon uh, came about during the, the First World War. Um, but it's it's particularly again I think uh, brought out by the by the epidemic and uh, then there are different kinds of science. What kind of science do you trust? Uh, you're going to have exactly the same discussions about uh, climate. You do have the same discussions about climate science. It's interesting that uh, I think you've used the phrase at least twice now during this conversation that this is not new, that we've seen this before. And that's something that kind of runs through the book, that uh, part of what you uh, seem to be arguing to me is that even in the middle of a crisis like the one that we're going through now with the pandemic, you're constantly urging us to think about history, to think about what history uh, not necessarily can teach us, but what what we can learn from uh, the experience of thinking about history itself, that you point back to the French Revolution, to the Industrial Revolution. So is history really the key, do you think, or one of the keys to uh, thinking about language and thinking about the impact that it's going to have today? Yes, I I, I think the uh, one way of thinking of it, at least, is to think that these words are like a kind of snowball or a uh, if you want a, an analogy again from the sphere of money, it's like blockchain technology that you've got a distributed ledger and you uh, then register all the things that have gone into that in the past. And uh, that creates a, a kind of aura or a nimbus around the, the word that brings associations and brings uh, brings memories. Um uh, so uh, I mean, that's exactly why w- why these terms are so powerful, and on the other hand, also why they're imprecise because they 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 carry so much from the past, and people use them in very very different ways and talk past each other. But as they talk past each other, uh, they bring out all these reminiscences and uh, all these really uh, they're deeply coded in our. In a kind of collective experience, uh, and uh, that, that that gives the words that their power. But unless they've got some kind of precision, um, the power is at least it can be quite destructive. 
But a bit like uh, blockchain and, and say, cryptocurrencies, uh, Bitcoin and so on, it, it can be a bit of a wild west out there that uh, you write that the best understanding of a liberal open society relies on the concept of a marketplace of ideas. Uh, but as you, uh, as you rightly point out, the problem is that uh, sometimes the best ideas are not always the ones that end up winning. Right. Uh, it, it, it's exactly right that uh, what term you use uh, is going to shape what the outcome is, but what term you use depends on the way that it's picked up by other people and whether it goes. You know, this was an analogy that came a long, long time before the coronavirus, uh, when terms go viral, um, when other people use them, and then they, like a virus a bit, they mutate and uh, they, they, they can change their impact and change the, the degree to which they're infectious as well. But I get that that's the essence of classical liberalism, isn't it? That you, you focus on process, not on outcome. Yes, uh, you, 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 you really need to keep the openness. Um, and uh, you know, I think the, 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 the danger is that these overburdened words um, actually make it more difficult for, for other ways of articulating uh, opinions or uh, policy proposals uh, so they get drowned out. So how how do these ideas kind of take a grip? For example, you use the example in the book of uh, Larry Diamond, one of their founders of American Purpose, uh, and the term that he coined of uh, democratic recession. I mean, a, a phrase like that really has kind of become part of the common currency now. It's often you often see it referred to in uh, debate and so so on. How does a phrase like that actually take root? Do you think if you listen to it uh, or you read it? Um you think, well, yes, that actually captures something. Uh, it's, it's, it's a good way of presenting a particular phenomenon, of um, just, uh, uh, just capturing a commonality. Uh, you, you see the same kind of thing taking place in different countries, and you, you, you think that there, there must be something in common here. And so uh, it, it, it packages a kind of analysis of what's going on um, as, as well as a comparison. And, and and what about the the words that seem so nebulous that uh, we we really don't quite know what they mean? I mean, you use the example of neoliberalism that uh, you describe as a catch-all word that's been used to explain more or less everything that's gone wrong with the world over uh, the past half century. I mean, do do words like that those in the end do they actually become meaningless? Do you think, or is there still do they st still actually have some kind of meaning that's useful for us? Well, I, I think uh, neoliberalism is one of the ones that's really right at the centre of the debate, and um, it, it's it's put up, I think, uh, almost everywhere as a critique of something that uh, dominated the policy approaches in the nineteen nineties and the two thousands. Um, when you get a bit more precise about it. Um, it, it looks like a world which uh, depends on deregulation and free markets and uh, pushing back the role of the state. Um, and uh, what struck me as curious about that was that it was almost the opposite of the way in which the term was originally used when it was introduced in the 1930s um, as a 
in a world that's actually quite similar to our own world, a polarized world, and where people were looking for a way out. And uh, a group of um, French, uh, American, uh, some uh, exiles from Central Europe met in Paris in, in 1938. And uh, that, that's really where this, this term came from. But their vision was really very different to the one that is is summed up by the term neoliberalism today. And, you know, neoliberalism today is just, I think, a word of abuse. Almost nobody uh, will describe themselves as a neoliberal. And institutions that uh, are often presented as being neoliberal go out of their way to say that they're not neoliberal. Uh, the International Monetary Fund is, 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 is always saying that it's it's uh, it, it's not at all neoliberal, um, but you know that was one of the institutions that was always held up as as practicing this kind of particular philosophy. And so that, that, that that's actually a good instance because it, it seems to me that the the original concept of neoliberalism, as as, as presented in the nineteen thirties, actually had a good good deal of really positive and useful policy contributions to make to a policy debate today, uh, but. You know, just in using neoliberalism as a term of abuse, you lose all that sense of the, the, the possible policies. Neoliberalism in the 1930s was about limiting credit expansion so that you didn't get speculative bubbles. It was about the way in which competition could be used to control the abuse of monopoly power. But those are all issues that are really very, very relevant today. Now, part of your uh, job as a as a historian is as a, as a professor at uh, Princeton. I mean, what about language in universities? They've become, in many ways, ground zero for debates about meaning, history. Uh, sometimes the opposite of debate, counselling. Um, what what do you make of the debates which are going on around around that issue? Well, uh, you know, there I, th- I think it it really is enormously important uh, to keep vocabulary uh, that is precise and where you know exactly where you can establish uh, what is being referred to. And a lot of the uh, the discussion about cancel culture on, on both sides is, is kind of full of inflated language about uh, threats and dangers and uh, uh, attacks on... Uh, freedom and so on um and is 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 really it seems to me quite overloaded yeah i mean it's it's something in some ways that you allude to right at the at the end of the book in the conclusion where uh, you say the challenge today is to find a vocabulary that promotes understanding not confusion community uh, not division uh, I, I suppose there's 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 going to be a sense of good luck with that um uh, about that but i mean you're right the one step in the right direction uh, you say is a vocabulary rich with meaning and grounded in historical context so uh, how confident are you that we can actually move to a position like that? I think the best uh, way of answering that that, uh, that hard question is, <laughs> is, is to say if we don't move in that direction, we're really pretty lost and uh, we're in a kind of world of uh, meanings that are like, like financial bubbles, uh, that uh, they, they experience expand and expand and expand and then suddenly there's a pinprick and the whole thing bursts and uh, you move on to something else and um, you know like a succession of financial bubbles uh, that's a quite destructive phenomenon but precision in language can help us get there 
Yes, exactly. Uh, so precision, uh, concision, um, uh, careful construction of analytical arguments, uh, those are the things that will help you to defeat those, those bubbles. And, you know, again, I think... Um, Actually, that that kind of analogy with uh, finance and financial history is not unuseful. That uh, people have thought about ways of trying to restrict uh, the emergence of financial bubbles by more regulation. Uh, but there's a way in which the ingenuity of participants in the marketplace, and you could say exactly the same about participants in the marketplace of ideas, gets around those restrictions. And so uh, you, you know you 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 can actually see it. I think in even in debate in a society where there's a lot of censorship um, in in China, uh, you suddenly use different kinds of words to describe words that are banned. Uh, so you you will always get round any kind of regulation, and that's why I think the the idea of regulating language very very dramatically or very sharply uh, in universities, uh, policing language, and so on. Is really an exercise that's doomed to failure. Um, it, it, it's, it's just going to produce um, ways around that. And uh, the better way uh, is by thinking about an understanding of the system as a whole. Um, if people in a financial bubble uh, know more about it, they're less likely to act as bubble drivers. And I think exactly the same analogy holds true uh, for for uh, the participants in a in a verbal bubble, in a bubble of meaning. So the book is The War of Words, A Glossary of Globalization. It's written by my guest, Harold James, and published by Yale University Press. Uh, but for now, Harold, congratulations again, and thanks for joining us on Bookstack. Well, thank you so much, Richard. It was really great talking with you. So that's it from us this week. Don't forget to check our website, AmericanPurpose.com, and to leave us a review on your podcast app. The show is produced by Damien Rusick. We're off next week for the holiday weekend, so do join us again in two weeks' time. But for now, this is me, Richard Alder, saying thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.